This is James Goover with K-State Research and Extension's Wildcat District with your Extension Crop Report. We are at the point in the year where soybean pests really start to take off in numbers. By now, many are on their second and third generation. Also, as the corn dries down, some move from the cornfields and into the soybean fields. Being a highly nutritious broadleaf, there are lots of pests that will feed on soybean leaves. We are mostly focused on bean leaf beetles, spider mites, and moth worms. Every year, we see bean leaf beetles. Bean leaf beetles are quarter inch long red beetles with six black spots. They tend to chew circular holes in the leaves. The treatment threshold is seven beetles per row foot on soybeans with four or fewer nodes and 25% defoliation. Later in the growing season, it takes a lot more beetles to cause any yield loss from eating leaves. However, they can also feed directly on young pods. Every field will have at least some amount of bean leaf beetles, but rarely there is enough to warrant spraying. The green clover worm often takes off in population this time of year. They are smaller and light green worm. At this point, treatment thresholds will be over 10 worms per row foot. However, when clover worms get to high populations, there is a certain parasitic fungus that will take over and nearly wipe them out. Thistle caterpillars and webworms have similar treatment thresholds, both of which can have higher number populations this time of year, but often not enough to warrant pesticides. Generally, these worms will be more of a problem in very young soybeans, where an outbreak can cause a lot more damage. Really, the bigger issue with soybeans is podworms and fall armyworms. Podworms are the exact same worm as corn earworms, and they will move from the corn into the soybeans. Since they feed directly on the pods, population thresholds are only a couple per row foot. Spider mites prefer years just like this one, hot and dry. They can be very difficult to spray for because they mostly stay underneath the leaves and are protected by webbing. The damage by spider mite looks a lot like drought stress leaves, and spider mites, like most insects, are usually worse near the field edges. Spider mites have to be in pretty high levels before it is worth spraying for them. When scouting a field for insects, be sure to check multiple locations and not just the field edge. Many insects might be worse on the field edge because this is the first place to get to. Grasshoppers and stink bugs, for instance, can really travel, but they aren't picky where they feed. It is always important to remember that soybeans overcompensate in the number of leaves needed to fuel pods. In a general sense, soybeans can withstand 20% leaf defoliation without a reduction in yield. That 20% can look a lot worse than it really is. And of course, any pesticide application is going to have the downside that while it will decrease the bad bugs in the field, it will nearly eliminate all the good bugs. Another issue with drought is that it can be hard to tell where those treatment thresholds are. Where our yields might be down, the insect damage can actually end up being worse because the soybeans are at a smaller size with less ability to recover than they would be in a normal year. There are all kinds of insects out there in the soybean fields, both good and bad. If you have any questions over treatment thresholds or would like some insect identification, please give me a call at 620-724-8233. This has been James Coover with your Extension Crop Report. Next up, we'll have Wendy Powell, Livestock Production Agent for the Wildcat District. Hi, this is Wendy Powell, your Livestock Production Agent with the Wildcat Extension District. Feed prices are constantly changing. One may be more economical now, but not the best option for another time. All producers should know how to compare feed costs and balance least cost rations. Feedstuffs are priced according to different units of measure, bushels, tons, or bales. Bales come in varying size and densities. 
So the first step is to convert prices to the same unit, usually pounds or tons. Barley that sells for $3 a bushel is six cents a pound. A hay bale weighing 40 pounds, costing $5, is 12 and a half cents per pound. Lighter bales will increase the per pound cost of the hay. Livestock feed rations are balanced on a dry matter basis, but feedstuffs are priced as is, meaning that a portion of the weight is moisture. Because the dry matter content of the feedstuffs can vary significantly, prices must be converted to a dry matter basis. This is especially important when comparing dry feeds like hay or grain with high moisture options like silage or haylage. Livestock do not require certain feedstuffs. They require nutrients, protein, energy, minerals, and vitamins, specified amounts. Feedstuffs vary considerably in the amount of protein, energy, and other nutrients they contain. For this reason, the cost of providing a certain nutrient is the basis on which feedstuffs are compared. To determine the cost of a nutrient, divide the feed's dry matter cost by the percent nutrient in the feed. Continuing with our barley example, the energy cost eight and a half cents per pound, whereas the cost of energy in alfalfa is a quarter per pound. While grains have fairly consistent nutrient levels, forages and byproduct feeds can vary drastically. In order to compare the cost of nutrients in some feedstuffs, you should have them analyzed to determine their nutritional content. For example, the protein in alfalfa hay can vary from 10 to more than 20%. Cost is not the only factor to consider when evaluating feedstuffs. There may be limitations as to how much of the feedstuff can be fed. Corn silage is a very economical source of nutrients, but a high-producing animal may not be able to eat enough of it to meet nutritional requirements. Feedstuffs are combined to create a ration that is nutritionally balanced. Care must be taken not to create dangerous imbalances. Some feedstuffs contain high levels of certain minerals, like dried distiller's grain and sulfur. Sulfur binds with copper and limits its absorption. Feed cost also has to include delivery charges and waste. Some feeds have practically no waste, whereas others have quite a lot. Feeding and storage methods have the largest effect on waste. For more information, give me a call at the Labette County Extension Office, 620-784-5337. Thanks, Wendy. And now, here's David Scrantz, Natural Resource and Diversified Ag Agent, with her report. This is a David Scrantz, one of the Agriculture and Natural Resource Agents from the K-State Research and Extension Wildcat District of Crawford, Labette, Montgomery, and Wilson Counties with your K-State Research and Extension report. If you are considering planting a winter food plot, Knowing the nutrient levels of the soil before planting will help you determine if you need to add fertilizer to the soil. Correct soil sampling in the field is essential for an accurate soil test and consequently for an optimum nutrient management program. To obtain a proper soil sample, there are a few guidelines to follow. Start with the right equipment. You will need a soil probe, a clean bucket, and a few plastic bags or soil sample bags. The extension offices have soil probes that you can borrow to collect your soil sample. Map it out. Draw a map of the sample area and divide it into uniform areas. 
Each area should have the same soil texture, color, slope, and fertilization and cropping history. Start sampling. For the standard pH, buffer pH, P, and K test, sample 6 inches deep and take 10 to 15 core samples from each area. Moving in a zigzag across the area will help to get a more representative sample. Mix thoroughly in the clean bucket. Fill your soil collection bags from this mixture, making sure that there are about two cups of soil in each bag. For available nitrogen, chloride, or sulfur tests, take the same number of cores, but a subsoil sample to a depth of 24 inches is necessary. It is also important to note that if a zinc test is requested, use a plastic bucket for soil collection as galvanized or rubber materials may contaminate the results. Places to avoid. Avoid taking samples from old fence rows, dead furrows, low spots, feeding areas, or other areas that might give unusual results. If information is desired from these unusual areas, obtain a separate sample from that area. Label. Be sure to label the soil container clearly. Record the sample identification on the container and the information sheet. Keep records as to where the soil samples were taken and the name that was given for each sample. Send samples. Once all the soil is collected from these desired areas, take the samples to your local K-State Research and Extension Office. We will then send the samples to the K-State Soil Testing Laboratory to be analyzed. Generally, you can expect results back within two weeks. From the K-State Research and Extension Wildcat District, this has been a Dave Ross with your K-State Research and Extension Report. Thank you, Adavin. And now, here is Jesse Gilmore with his report. With K-State Research and Extension's Wildcat District, this is Jesse Gilmore bringing you this week's edition of the Hort Report. In industrial areas, you might be concerned about soil contamination. Some soils will have higher levels of heavy metals, but this is not necessarily a problem depending on your exposure to the soil. Heavy metal is a general term for any element with a mass higher than iron, and overexposure to heavy metals can cause chronic health problems. Four heavy metals with the highest concentrations in soil are arsenic, cadmium, chromium, and lead. These metals all occur naturally in the soil to some extent, but industrial applications that use these metals make contamination more likely. Because of this, care should be given when getting topsoil from industrial land. Lead is by far the most significant of these four contaminants because of its health effects and widespread industrial application. Background levels of lead in Kansas soils can range anywhere from 50 parts per million to 200 parts per million. According to the EPA, the allowable maximum of lead in soils is 2,000 parts per million. Any higher and the soil either needs to be decontaminated or removed. However, for children, the maximum lead exposure limit is 400 parts per million since lead can cause developmental issues. Topsoil from nurseries and garden centers should not contain any extra contamination, but if you're thinking of purchasing topsoil from more urban areas, it might be worth getting a test done through your extension office to see if any extra soil management will be needed. If your soil does come back hot in heavy metals, you can still use the soil
well, but you need to exercise caution, especially when gardening. Contrary to popular belief, lead does not end up in the food you grow in contaminated soil in any sufficient quantity. This is because lead is immobile in the soil due to its weight. A minor amount of lead will be taken up, but the more likely exposure pathway is inhalation of dust for adults and ingestion for kids. You can minimize the risk of exposure by following these tips. Grow upstream vegetables. The farther the heavy metal has to travel in the plant, the less of it will end up in parts you eat. Fruiting vegetables like tomatoes and peppers will have lower lead levels than leaf vegetables like lettuce or spinach. Grow vegetables that are easier to clean, and avoid growing root vegetables. Lettuce is again an example of fender because dirt can end up trapped inside the head of lettuce where it is then ingested. Root vegetables are also discouraged because of the deep cleaning that they would require to prevent ingestion. Make sure your soil, organic matter, and pH levels are high. Studies in Toledo and Seattle have shown that soil lead concentrations fell by almost half when compost was incorporated into the soil. Don't leave bare soil in your landscape where children can play and ingest it or where the wind can kick up dust. Throw plants or turf in the soil, mulch the soil, or cover it with a tarp if the soil is going to serve as a foundation for a structure. Last, make sure that soil nutrient levels are where they need to be for a garden. The more nutrients, especially phosphorus, a soil has, the less will be available to plants to take up into vegetative tissue. Because soil fertility is an important part of keeping lead unavailable to plants, it's important to have regular soil tests done. Extension offices can take soil samples for both plant nutrients and heavy metals if they are a concern. Get in touch with your county office for more info. Thank you, Jesse, and thank you for listening to K-State Research and Extension's Wildcat District Ag Team on KGGF 690 Radio.